one of the things that I find most fascinating about using neuroscience in the work that I do is that there's a lot of really common misconceptions about neuroscience. Don't conduct your analysis in isolation because data is so incredibly powerful. Not defending just the tribe, but defending the organization. Those creative people that you really want to keep empowered, keep excited, keep motivated, keep thinking. Good experience pays dividends down the line. Stereotypes tend to break down in proximity. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast about human resources, business, technology, and the workplace. My name is Ben Eubanks, your host, and I'm so glad you're here. Hi, I'm Ben Eubanks, and welcome to We're Only Human. I'm really glad to have you here for the discussion today, and it's going to be a little bit different episode, a little bit different content format. That's okay. Hang with me. It is totally worth it. This interview you're about to hear was recorded in September during the Global Human Resources Summit, a virtual reality event for leaders around the globe. The discussions were amazing, and congratulations to Matt Burns and the team for a phenomenal event. My interview, as you've already gathered from the teaser, is about neuroscience. I'm talking with Travis Haler from Google about the neuroscience of change management, how our brains work, and why we need to be using data and evidence to support our decision making. Travis was amazingly informative, and I hope you enjoy this deep dive on the inner workings of how our brains work and how they interrelate with this conversation around change management. Enjoy. Now, on with the show. So, as Matt said, this is, I run a podcast called We Are Only Human, one of many things that I do, and my background's is as an HR leader. I've been in the trenches, I've worked in the field, and I love bringing that practical perspective and trying to weave it in with new research, new data, the technology side of it. And one of the things I, I say about We're Only Human is it's about the intersection of people and technology at work. And so what better place than this event, the first VR event for HR leaders to talk about some of those kinds of things. And Travis, I don't wanna, I don't wanna put too many words out there for I start talking about why I asked you here. So Travis is actually an expert in the area of, of change management, neuroscience, that's some of the work that he does is how to use the way the brain works to help us get better at change. And if you have ever had to deal with change, and all of us have, especially lately it feels like, there's opportunity to, to learn how to do that better, how to tackle that in ways that Again, align with the ways we naturally work and believe as humans. But beyond that, Travis, will you take a few minutes to tell us more about who you are, what you do, before we dive into some of the conversation? Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. So I, as Matt mentioned, Ben mentioned, I'm Travis Healer. I'm really excited to be here. I am our global change and transformation lead for Google Cloud. I spend most of my day trying to understand change and understand impacts of change for our people at Google. So in my kind of area that I, I focus within Google, I focus within our people internally, trying to help them adopt changes that are coming to our organization, and whether that be through process changes, technology changes, or just belief changes. So as we continue to create different and new areas that we're working with within Google Cloud, or we start to do things a little differently than we've done before because of changes in the market, as we have seen with COVID, it's my job to help understand those changes and help articulate them to our people in a way that helps them to adopt as well as to help others adopt and be as efficient and simple as possible. And efficient and simple are always very difficult terms uh, when we come <laughs> to change management. But in my background before Google, I've worked in consulting with change and culture work, transformation work. I've been in industry, so I've worked for companies like Target, Allstate Insurance. 
I hold an MBA. I have a degree in psychology business, and I've studied neuroscience, neuropsychology at a number of different universities in um, both practice as a researcher and as a student. And so um, that's my background. And I came to Google about two and a half years ago, starting with helping our customers drive change and transformation. And most recently, about six months ago, took the role as uh, leading our internal change and transformation work. Awesome. So I've got to tell you, one of the things that I get nerdy excited about is the, the concept of neuroscience. And so I know that's one of the areas that you speak a lot on, you, you talk a lot on. When I started digging up some of your background and prep for this, I saw you've been anywhere and everywhere. It feels to talk about this. And so this is a new format for both of us to, to explore this one, but I'd love for you to talk about the big picture of why neuroscience matters in that conversation, right? And you're helping with the, the conversation around change management, how we can move the ball forward. And you said simple, easy. We'd love for things to be simple and easy in that space. And as well as I do, that's not always the case. We talk about the neuroscience piece and why that weaves into that, why that's so important. Yeah, it's a great question. I get it a lot, especially when I'm speaking to larger groups and especially in HR, because I think neuroscience is not typically seen as an area of focus for our particular business units. And one of the things that I love about neuroscience and one of the reasons I think it's so important for change and transformation work is because neuroscience is science. It is scientifically backed by research, by experts in the field, and really our brain dictates everything about who we are and the people that we interact with and how we interact with them. So when we think about change and transformation work, thinking about neuroscience is an essential part of it. And whether or not you consciously know that you're thinking about neuroscience, a lot of times you are. But one of the things that I find most fascinating about using neuroscience in the work that I do is that there's a lot of really common misconceptions about neuroscience. And we have these beliefs that people have created without a lot of backing knowledge or science to it. One of the examples, and we'll probably talk about this a little later around how, what our kind of brain rules are and things like that. But I really like that concept of brain rules. And one of the things that we talk about is attention. And we've been told many times that there's so many different ways to learn and there's, but not that there's a lot of ways that you can learn. You have to find your specific way of learning. So maybe you're a verbal learner or a visual learner or, or an experiential learner. And we've been put into a bit of a box and we say, oh, I'm a verbal learner. So that's how I need to digest all of my information. When in reality, everyone just learns, it all has to do with attention. Our brain needs to have attention and focus to be able to learn. So whether that is verbally that you're getting focused at that moment or visually is keeping your attention, et cetera, it doesn't matter. You're going to learn with what captures your attention and what keeps your focus. But we've all been told that we need to sit in this box. So when it comes to neuroscience, I think the more that we know about the way that our brain works, the better we can understand the situation that our people are in and also understand how we get them to where we need them to be within the transformation journey. And I think that's really important. One of the things that when you said that the learning styles thing that popped in my head immediately is my, we have four kids, 10 and under, we're doing the virtual school things, send good vibes our way. One of the things that my kids did, my older kids did last week was what's your learning style? And they went through and did this thing to tell them what kind of style they were. And that was the, in the back of my head, I'm thinking like this, is not science. This has been debunked. There's not a single style that fits everybody. And I'm trying to like hold that back. And also, cause they're at the same time, they're excited about, oh, this must be how I learn, right? This, now I know more about myself and I'm trying to 
temper their enthusiasm with, yes, but the situation might change that. The company you're in might change that. Right? The, different, the different aspects of just whatever experience you're going through could shift that one way or the other where it better right now. Auditory is going to be a fit for everybody here in some form or fashion, just because of the, the, the nature of the medium. But um, anyway, that was, that was the first thing that popped in my head when, when that came out is there's a, we'd like to know something about ourselves. We think whether it's scientifically based and validated or not, we want to know something about ourselves because we feel like that gives us a better handle on how we operate and gives us some more predictability or control over our world. Even if, you know, as you pointed out, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a fit. That is initially, there's not any science to back that up necessarily. We just, it feels good to feel like we know that. Is that right? Would you agree with that? Because I, I think that feels, that fits into that bigger conversation around change, where if we feel like we have some control over something, even if we don't, it feels good to us. Even if we find out later, wow, I really did not see how that was going to go. That surprised me. That, that went sideways. It felt good in the moment to feel like we had made all the plans and everything else for it to, to go right. Absolutely. I, I think as, as humans, we struggle so much when it comes to ambiguity and our brain is wired in a way that kind of keeps us away from ambiguity. So when we are in an ambiguous situation, our brain tries to understand it. And the way that we do that is by finding anything, any piece of anything that we can to try and piece together a story. And so we'll leverage everything that we know and everything that we've learned. And then we'll go and find people who will either validate us or invalidate us and try and use that to our advantage as well to try and answer all these ambiguous questions that we're sitting with at the moment. And I, I think in the terms of change and change management, transformation, all of that, one of the biggest things that I find, Ben, is that words are really important. So to your example with your kids, they're taking their learning styles quiz. If we just call that an attention quiz, what's your focus areas? What you know creates attention for you? It would mean exactly the same thing to them, but it would not be an invalid statement rather than saying learning styles, attention styles. So I think it's words are really important when it comes to how we talk about change and transformation. Hmm. That's from the guy that talks neuroscience. I figure we're going to get more into some of the words in a little bit. So <laughs> excellent. So one of the ideas, one of the, I can remember the first time I had this fascination with the idea of neuroscience is I read a book many years ago called Brain Rules. And it talked about some of the different ways that our brains are hardwired to operate. And again, as I'm reading that, as a person who works in HR at the time, I'm trying to translate that over into the business context. Change is an obvious one, right? That's what you do every day. I'm thinking about other areas of how I'm trying to get things done in the business. And I'm latching on to some of these ideas and, and the book Brain Rules, but it's about how our brains operate. It's just trying to get some of those, those specific things laid out so we can understand them and codify them so that, again, we can take advantage of them, like this attention styles example you just gave. So what are some of those things we know about the brain, how it works? Can you give us a couple examples of those that we can use? And uh, then maybe we can talk about some examples or some use cases and stuff later. But to start off, what are some of those things about our brain we know that are true? There's some science to back that up. Yeah, the attention one is my favorite by far because it really does speak to how our brain works and how we learn. I think the other ones that are really interesting that we sometimes forget about, but we seem to know a lot about them because they're everywhere, is one of them around sleep, right? We all need a certain amount of sleep every night for our brains to function. And not getting enough sleep is actually incredibly harmful to our thought process. And it can create situations where you feel that you can't make decisions or you feel disoriented. And it's amazing 
that sleep is so important for our brain, but yet some of us veer on the side of, I need less sleep because I need to get stuff done. When you're approaching that diminishing return situation, right? Where the longer you stay up and the less sleep you get, the less return you're going to get the next day. So maybe you had to work an extra three hours, but that kept you up really late and you end up getting only six hours of sleep. That tomorrow then is like paying for it later, basically. And so trying to manage your energy and your sleep and your rest to be able to recharge your brain is really important. That's my other favorite one. I also like to use that as an excuse because I also love to sleep. So I really enjoy <laughs> getting lots of rest on the weekends. So I'm recharging my brain. No, really. The doctor said scientifically, I've got to do this. Exactly. Exactly. It's scientifically proven. When you said the attention thing a minute ago, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that. Actually, I'm flashing back for a second for another question. But when you mentioned the attention thing, I thought you were going to go with the goldfish. That myth we all heard the goldfish have a certain attention <laughs> span and human spans are shorter. I thought you were going to go there and you didn't actually. No, I didn't. But that's also a good one. Is that one of your favorite ones from the book? So there we've all heard the 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 statement that goldfish have an attention span of whatever the number is and humans now have an attention span shorter than them that came out a couple of years ago in the news and everyone was talking about it and the actual scientists were like we don't actually know how to measure the attention span of a goldfish so don't you know don't quote us on that one and it's one of those that became a thing that i've seen from many stages where speakers talk about it they pointed out like hey look this is the real thing and again, there's no science behind it. And that's the, we sometimes think, okay, it's just a, it's a happy story. It's an object lesson. But the, my concern is we get away from the actual data that might prove that, hey, attention spans may be better than they were 10 years ago. I, I don't know that. You could probably tell us for sure. But I'm always cautious about just going with one of those stories. It's my natural inclination to push back a little bit and be a little bit, you could say skeptical. I'll be, you know, curious, I'll say, but I'll push back on some of those things that I hear because I want to get to the real root of that. If it's true, I want to prove it. If it's not true, I'd love to prove that too. So I can know, at least know what the truth is. Absolutely. And we live in a society where we are so inundated with information. And sometimes that information is published quickly in hopes of getting a, a headline ahead of someone else or getting out there for clicks and whatnot. In a situation like that, it's really hard to validate information on the fly. And so to your point, Ben, like I'm with you, I read everything, but take it all with a grain of salt until I can actually find the, the source that gives me that information and says that that's actually factual and scientifically proven, which is hard today in a day of social media. I call myself a, a I'm an optimist, but I'm a skeptical optimist. So like optimist, <laughs> if I'm going like, to mash some words together, but I, again, it's just, I want to know those things because I'm always teaching my kids. There's data behind every decision we make. And I try not to go too nerdy on their only, the oldest ones are only 10. The five-year-old certainly won't get it, but I'm trying to help them see when they make a decision like this, even if we just accept something that's true, if it's not true, it could impact us long-term. Let's translate some of those things we talked about a minute ago, right? The, the attention piece or I'm blanking on the second one. What was the second one you brought up? Sleep was the second one, but we can focus Sleep. more on attention probably. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. I, I want to come back to sleep later because there's actually... I have, I've got a good book recommendation for you if, you, if you're a big reading nut like I am. So let's talk about the attention piece of that in the context of change management, in the context of things, if you're people in the room who are working in HR, working with leadership in those areas, why does the attention piece of that, how does that fit into the big puzzle of what we've got to worry about? We've got everything else to figure out. Why that too? 
you've got a lot of things to worry about when it comes to change management. Definitely have a long list of to-dos, but I think attention is really important because when we think about what we're actually trying to do when we drive change and adoption and transformation and overall, is we're trying to rewire the way people work today to work tomorrow differently whether that's for simplification purposes or because of new systems or just simply new reasons why we need to work in a different way because of market, et cetera. All of that is really important. But at the end of the day, we're trying to get someone to go from the way they work today to the way we want them to work in the future. A lot of that process and, and task-oriented data is stored within our brains in our basal ganglia, which actually is the center of the brain that kind of houses our repetitive and habitual functions. So if you're doing something day in and day out, most likely it's hardwired into your brain. And sometimes you're able to even put yourself on autopilot. I find this a lot when you deal with passwords, like you'd have to change your password and for the next three weeks, you still type the wrong password every single time. The reason is it's hard coded into your data in your, in your brain to say, this is my password and this is what I'm gonna type. So every single time you'll type the wrong password until you get it hard coded that your new password is different. With attention, the reason that's so important is because we need to teach people new ways of working. And the only way that they will learn is through attention. So attention is really your biggest hurdle and probably your greatest weapon when it comes to arming people with the knowledge that they need. Because if we don't have their attention, they don't learn. If they don't learn, they can't replace their habitual task information in their brain and if they don't do that, they'll never adopt the new way of working. And so without that kind of process there and without attention, you really don't have anywhere that you can go. You, you've got to get attention first. It's really the building block of how you create meaningful change within an organization. And there's many other ways that you can force it, but attention is probably your best bet when it comes to actually creating meaningful change. I remember reading years ago, there's... If you've ever heard the term muscle memory, can I see a hand, anybody? The term muscle memory from, like we've heard this before, the, the person who actually discovered that was entirely by accident because his granddaughter played a prank on him. He was this scientist and he was actually getting up, he was getting dressed for the day and he was trying to button his jacket. And he was just puttering around and he realized he'd been trying to button his jacket for two or three minutes and hadn't done it yet. And he looked down and she had sewn the buttonhole shut. He's like, okay, the little scamp, ha ha. And then he's like, wait a minute. My brain has been trying to do this without my body consciously realizing it for this several minute period of time. Like it's, my brain's just blank about what happened in that interim. And that's when he realized like there's this, there's something pushing us to do, to do this, this action, repetitive action without the conscious mind ever being aware of it. And it was just, a, again, it was a fun accident for him. That when I'm talking about change and the importance of attention as you're mentioning here, if you can't get the attention, they're going to keep doing that thing they've been doing over and over and over again because there's nothing to shock them out of their, their standard sort of approach. Absolutely. And if you can't do that, then you're never going to teach them new ways of working, never going to drive adoption. So let's talk about how to get attention. Right? We, we can play a prank on them, but that may, not, may, may backfire a little bit. So let's that worked in that example. What ways would you recommend if someone's a leader and they're trying to get their team on board with this new idea or they're trying to go bigger in the organization, trying to get them to buy into a new approach? How do you get people's attention when, again, you said earlier, right? They're so busy. They've got a lot of things that they're worried about. How do we grab their attention and get them focused? 
yeah, there's many ways to grab attention. And, and I think the best is to go with a really broad approach. There are different ways of communicating, different ways of sharing information. If you just think strictly on sharing information, there's email, which is pretty much our default whenever it comes to sending a communication. But there's also things like town hall meetings, um, team meetings. The same messaging over and over eventually will grab attention. And, and that repetitive nature, seeing it over and over again, will start to grab people's attention. Like, I've seen this a couple of times. I've heard this a couple of times. Let me dig in more or let me understand a little bit more about what you mean. And so that's just strictly how you communicate. But there's so many other ways that you can actually grab attention. And when I do large scale transformations, so if I'm doing a program that might be a year or six months or multiple years, the first thing we try to do is we try to actually create a brand and create a type of branding strategy that's going to help us to drive attention to that particular topic. So whether that's a fun brand or something like uh, I did one where we were doing Legos and that was the overarching theme and brand of this particular transformation. And we were using building blocks as our main way of articulating how we are going to build from the bottom up this new process, a new system. And what that does really is it creates this unintentional bookmark in your brain. And when you pass that sign that has that same branding, maybe you don't fully pay attention to it, but in your mind, you're going, oh, interesting. That must have something to do with this transformation I've been hearing a lot about, or so-and-so sent that email and I, I recognize the, the branding or the logo. Uh, and those types of things grab attention, even if it's only for a second. But if you continuously use that in all of your messaging, in all of the ways that you actually articulate what you're trying to get people to do, so things like posters, digital marketing, any swag you're doing, any emails, any comms, all that kind of stuff, people will eventually start to see a pattern. And I just had a talk the other day about COVID-19 and how we bring people back into the office and how we get them to abide by the new rules and ways of working in an office, which are going to be completely different than what they were when we left. We're going to have reduced people that will be able to be in those offices. We're going to have things like temperature checks, increased security, all that type of stuff that people need to learn. And one of the big things that we talked about was how do we create an idea of a marketing a strategy that will actually drive people's attention to pay attention to these new ways of working. And one of the ways was to create a logo and a, a specific template for every single sign or piece of information having to do with a change in process or procedure because of COVID-19. So when you see this particular logo or kind of template design, you will actually recognize, hey, I need to pay attention to that because that is a new way of working or a new way of being in this office that I need to know. So whether that's a only one way in this hallway or a you know temperature check here or a this desk is not able to be used due to social distancing, all of those things will meld together and become attention grabbing because you'll want to understand what it is in your environment that you can and cannot do. So in my biggest thing, it's branding when it comes to attention and trying to create an overall theme that people can follow. We have this inclination when it comes to change management to we've got a campaign. We might call it a campaign. We may not, but it's just, we see it as a steamroller. Like I'm just going to keep pushing hard enough until eventually everybody comes on board. And one of the things you said earlier about human behavior is ultimately what you're trying to go for. 
And if we're going to change anything in the business, it's a lot easier to change other things than it is to change human behavior. That's always held for the last thing because it's the hardest. Why do companies take that approach in general? Right? We're not to point anybody out, but why is that the common path to say, we're just, okay, we're making change. We're just going to drive right through this instead of taking the more campaign focused approach like you're talking about. That seems like, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth. So you go ahead, share that. I'll comment on it a little bit because I'm curious about why that is because it seems smarter to do it your way, but we both know that's not the common approach. I think that there's a couple things there. The first that I'm, I'm just going to be really frank and blunt, time and money. When we talk about branding, we talk about um, creating a campaign, we talk about actually engaging people. This is expensive. It's not cheap to do. You can try and be as frugal as possible as you should with your company dollars. But at the end of the day, it is going to create a commitment. And that commitment is either going to be budgetary or time. And we need both to be able to grab attention and drive adoption of new ways of working. So that's the first pushback that you're always going to get when it comes to senior leaders within a company, because we have a responsibility to shareholders or our partners to make sure that we're making smart financial decisions. And a lot of times that has to do in this market with the amount of time it's going to take and the amount of money we're going to spend on it. So you have to actually find a balance there. But the thing I approach that with, because that's usually the pushback I get first is time and money. The pushback I bring is what is the cost of failure? So if we're thinking that we're going to need $100,000 to do a marketing campaign over the next year and a half, what is the cost if after a year and a half not doing a marketing campaign of people never using the system we just built? How much is that going to cost us? So if the system is a $1 million system and we're spending $100,000 to get people to use it, then are we better off spending $100,000 or losing a million? And so when we start talking about actual, what is the cost of failure here? What is the cost of people not adopting the new way of working? And sometimes that new way of working is efficiency, right? A lot of times we're driving towards efficiency. So if efficiency is our goal and we never reach it, but we spend money on things to make it efficient, but not to get people to adopt it, the loss of efficiency also has a dollar value. So you have to lay it all out on the table when it comes to time and money. But that's my biggest pushback when it comes to why we don't approach things in this way. Usually. Wow. Goodness. It, it'd be really nice to be able to lay it all out there and show them the future before we get to the future and say, hey, here's, what, here's what's going to happen if we don't do this. If the, we don't take this path, we don't do this thing, here's what's going to be the cost for us. That When you mentioned that, the first thing I thought of when you talked about you know, we're putting this budget down, assuming that it's going to be adopted the way that we've laid it out. We know that again, reality is always a little different. No battle plan survives the first shot and all that. It reminded me there's a, you're probably, again, you're the, the neuroscience guy. You're probably familiar with the forgetting curve. It looks at how much we forget over time. There was a scientist over a hundred years ago that did some research and found if we just give you a bunch of information in a session and then we don't ever reinforce it, we don't tell you again, we don't, again, this campaign idea, we're not doing those kind of things. We just give it to you once and assume you're going to remember all that. And we come back and check on you a week later, most of that, a good half or, or more is, is gone. You've forgotten it. And mm -hmm. we take the same approach. Again, that's what I was saying here, talking about the change management component. We take that same approach where we're making a change. We've written this email that takes 15 minutes to scroll through all the details. And we're going to send that out. And 
check the box. We have notified people and they are now in the loop. And, and that's, it's silly, right? It seems funny to say it out loud, but that's what happens every single day ad companies across the world where they think, okay, we've got this major change, we've done all this work and everything else. Now let's just tell everybody and we're done. And the, the hardest part, the part you should expect to go wrong, the part you should expect to spend more time, more money, more efforts, more strategic thinking around is the part of actually getting that human behavior to change. And that's often like the last minute, oh yeah, we've, we forgot that part. Let's just tell them and we're done. And we forget that's, the, that's probably the most critical part of any sort of change. And again, like you said, part of that's the budget, part of that's, it's hard to say, hey, we've got to spend more on this. We've actually got to really do the, a strategic communications plan. We've got to build out different media for communicating this. We can't just throw it out there. So, goodness gracious. Okay. Let's talk about some other examples, if you don't mind, because you talked about uh, a use case earlier. Uh, I love the, the COVID one. That's very timely, very relevant. What other ways or examples, use cases, stories do you have that we can use to make these this practical? Because my biggest concern is someone walking away saying, hey, neuroscience is really cool. I can apply it to change. I should probably figure out how to do that. I, let's give them some ideas, some examples of how those things actually connect together, if you don't mind. Absolutely. The thing that I had said in the very beginning that I love about neuroscience is that it's science, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when we talk about change and transformation and, and especially driving adoption within our people, we get this situa into the situation where we're having a conversation with a senior leader and we have, let, let's say we have a, a statement that we make where we're trying to push back on time in terms of they want to do it in six months, but you're realistically thinking, wow, this is a year long thing. Like we're going to need six months just to get people to make this major change. And oftentimes when we're trying to think about change and transformation and trying to push back on things like timelines and whatnot, we'll say things like, oh gosh, that timeline seems aggressive. We make these blanket statements and that is not backed by anything. We're just saying in our opinion, this timeline feels aggressive. And so you're going off a of feel. And when you talk to a leader, anyone in a senior leader capacity, you're in that moment going head to head with them and going, my gut is this, and I'm challenging your gut. And so in that situation, everyone thinks their gut is right. And it comes down to who has the hierarchical power in the room to make that decision. When you think about neuroscience and using that to help drive change and adoption, it gives you something much more tangible to talk through. So in that example where I, I just used that statement saying, I feel like that timeline is aggressive. In a neuroscience type of conversation, you can say something to the effect of, so here's the deal. I know that we want to get this done in six months. I think it's actually more realistic to do a year and here's why. Because I think people, especially this group, let's use finance as an example, is going through a new system change. So they're going to lose competency in their particular situation, which causes them to need more time to overcome that loss. So we're going to have to spend a significant amount of time on that particular group just to get them over the loss of losing their competency on the previous system. So before we even get into training, before we even get into their use of new process and learning the new ways of working, we need to get them over that loss. Once we do that, we then need to train them. We then need to give them time to actually go through maybe a cycle, maybe a quarterly cycle, just to reinforce the process that we've just taught them. That alone is gonna take us six months. So your timeline of six months is not 
physically possible for us to even go forth with. You're using neuroscience and the fact that the brain does not do well when it comes to loss, and there's many losses that our brain can feel, one of which is competency, to actually use data and science to drive the fact that six months is not a reasonable time frame for that particular group. And using that type of neuroscience and the things that we know about our brain to actually have conversations like that, give us the tools to move from a my gut versus your gut conversation to a here are facts. If we need data, we can go find it, but let's have a conversation based on facts and, and where we are in realistically. That's actually one of the things I picked up when you were saying that. In the back of my head, I'm thinking this almost sounds in some ways like economics too, right? They were talking about opportunity cost of doing this thing versus that thing and trying to make decisions. And in both of those instances, it all comes down to there's actual data, there's actual evidence. We don't have to use your gut, my gut, the collective you know, gut of everybody in the room. We don't have to use those very subjective decision-making tools. We can use these other things that we know, things that are facts, things that are solid, and we can just apply them to our situation. And then we can make decisions that we all feel more comfortable about, but also hopefully, right, that have some scientific backing. So they should be much more likely to act, to happen as we expect them to versus, oh, that didn't work out. We're, again, podcast, we're only human. We'll get over it. We'll figure it out. We're willing to give ourselves that slack, but it'd be nice to not have to, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you to do something live, actually, that the sleep thing is still sticking in my head because that's something I and I'm the same as you, right? I'm very, very religious about block my and taking care of the sleep piece of that. And I think we, it's one of those things that we're all used to hearing. And the first time someone in here heard sleep, they're like, oh yeah, I should get some sleep. I should probably get more sleep. Okay, let's move on. And we're so quick to move past that. But as you said, there are actual, it's not just a, you'll feel bad, but there's actual performance impacts or cognitive impacts. You are, you are going to make worse decisions than you would if you were rested. So if I came to you, we're going to do we're going to build a campaign for our company to, to really focus on encouraging people to get more sleep so they can perform better, not just for the wellness aspect, which we know is there just because they'll be healthier, but because we want them to actually perform better. What are some of the things we should weave into that? If we're going to build this campaign, again, change management, using some of the different ideas and principles and putting those into practice, it's like a mini live case study almost, if you don't mind, but I'd love to hear from you, yeah. how you think about that, how you craft that, because I'd love to, Obviously, that's something that, that I would uh, vote for. I still think I believe in, but I'd just love to hear and let the audience take some notes on what ideas they are applied to other things they might be thinking about rolling out. Again, lots of change coming up probably. We'll think about going back into the workplace or changing their, their practices. So what are you thinking? Yeah, so our campaign is people need to get more sleep and we need to adjust from where we are today to making sure people are well rested as they come into the workplace. Lots of different things come to mind. First is, where's our data, right? Because mm -hmm. we're going to encounter this every single time we talk to someone. They're going to say, okay, but I feel fine if I've got mm -hmm. six hours of sleep. But is six hours enough is the question, right? So actually doing some work to get some of that data would be my first step. So sending out some surveys of the company and saying, hey, how many hours of sleep do you get in a night? Do you feel rested? And then using some of our cues that we know from the brain in terms of things like, do you, do you feel tired midday? Do you, are you able to get through your whole day without feeling tired, et cetera? And getting some of that sentiment from the actual end user. And then using that to craft a story and using data to actually craft our reason for 
creating this change. So maybe we find that half the company feels that they get enough sleep. The other half feels that they don't. So using some of the knowledge that we already have about the brain and about sleep, we can start to put together a story. And that story can be, and I'm making this up on the fly a little bit, so don't quote okay. science here, but I'm using <laughs> it as an example. So maybe we find that there's a loss of 20% efficiency for every hour of sleep that you get below your sleep, I guess your optimal sleep right. number, whether that's six hours or seven hours or whatever that might be. So we can actually put that in dollars. We can actually say, you know what, half of our company is getting an average of two hours less sleep than they need to be, which equates to approximately X number of dollars in lost efficiency over a week or a month or a year. And creating a story like that is really compelling. And the reason that it's compelling is because we can relate to it and it's based in data. And you'll hear me talk about data a lot and Google is a data-driven organization. And so one of the reasons I talk about data is because we are constantly striving for data to make decisions. So by creating that story and crafting that story, we now have the world at our feet because we can say, here's the information, here are the facts, and here's why we're going forward with this. Join us in our journey. And then driving forward from that moment, you can do things like creating our marketing and, and communication strategy, making sure that we're driving home the reasons why we're doing this change. Second, going through the ways that we're going to enable people to actually hours to be able to get the work done that we're asking them to do and making changes appropriately to say, are we overworked? Is this a corporate problem? Have we created a beast where our compensation and our, our ratings that we have for you at the end of the year and your performance review is all based on how much work you get done? If that's the case, everyone's going to stay up and work as long as they can because their money is tied to their performance, right? So starting to do some of that digging and creating those opportunities for people to actually make meaningful change. And then providing them with the data and the way forward. So from now on, we're gonna have, maybe it's a quarterly check-in on how you're feeling about your sleep. Quarterly check-in on how you feel about your, the amount of workload that you have and trying to gauge which one is actually causing the problem here. Perfect. Okay. I was going to, if you didn't mention the follow-up piece, I was going to ask about that because that's, I think, again, same thing I said earlier, we're, we're quick to say, okay, I have done the work. I put the plan together. The plan is now out there in the wild, dust our hands off and move on to the next thing. But again, human behavior is hard. And especially something like that is very ingrained. We've been doing it probably one way for many years and it doesn't change easily. And that's why you see in the beginning of January every year, everybody's like, diet, exercise, get my rest, everything else. And by March, you're like, ah, screw it, whatever. I'm, I'm back, back to normal because it's too hard. Not everybody. Totally. But again, that's generalization, but it's hard to change behavior. One of the things you said in there, though, I want to ask about, because you said at least once, if not twice, you mentioned story, building a story. And that's one of the things that I've heard. Again, I don't have data to, to back that up, but we remember things and stories better than we do just a, a raw bunch of facts and figures. We're more likely to, to connect with it, more likely to, to feel some emotional attachment to a story. Is storytelling part of this change or is it, should it be more facts and figures or is it a blend of both? Definitely a blend of both. Um, we are by nature storytellers. Humans are storytellers and that's how for thousands of years we have passed on information 
whether that's mm-hmm. things about our, our family or ways of working or things that have been successful um, for us in the past, hoping that the next generation uses that to create a better future. So stories make an emotional connection with your brain. And when you actually talk about stories and tell a story, people pay attention because they're able to identify with it. They connect to it on an emotional level. And emotions are our are, are strongest attribute in terms of humans. We have a very emotional brain. We have very strong emotions that we tie to. And so by telling a story and creating that narrative, we actually can create an environment for people to very quickly connect to our reason. And a lot of times stories are important because it creates something that everyone can get behind. If you ever heard the the phrase about if we give them one common enemy, they'll all band together. And sometimes that enemy has to be you. It's the same with stories. If we give them one common theme, one common thing that they're trying to accomplish, people will band together and see their um, similarities and their connection to that thing. Very powerful. Excellent. Awesome. We are on the home stretch. We've got a little bit of time left. I wanted to ask you, we've talked through several different things, different themes, different concepts and ideas today. If you were going to give the audience, you know, here's your three, four, five, whatever the number is, again, that's probably an awful number. There's probably science back that up too. But if there were a couple of things that you would give them as, if you're going to get become more rigorous about this approach, do these couple of things, what, what piece of advice might you give? Yeah, in terms of advice, there's a few things that I keep as our, our very basic building blocks of our methodology at Google, and especially as we approach changes. And the, I think the first is humility uh, when it comes to understanding the problem. Oftentimes, we kind of race into solving before we actually understand the true cause and root cause of a problem. That happens a lot in technology. We have a lot of very talented people who can take a system and create an amazing, amazing thing out of nothing. And they can do it very quickly and it'll solve the symptom, but it doesn't solve the problem. So I think the first is being, having that humility to actually go through the process of investigating the problem that you're actually facing and not skipping to solutioning. That's the first thing. And I think we do that very often as humans. The second I would say is empathy. Change management by its own nature is an empathetic endeavor. We have to understand where people are. We have to understand the situation they're going to be in and the path that they need to take to get where they're going. And that empathy is so important because without it, we're really skipping over the human part of change. And and Ben, you've talked about it a lot um, in this conversation, even how important humans and the human part of change is. It's very easy to implement a system. It's very hard to successfully get people to adopt it. And without empathy and understanding where people are coming from, what they'll need to get from today to tomorrow is pretty much impossible. So I would say empathy is my second one. And the third thing that I think is really important, and we've talked about it a number of times, is data. Making sure that you have the data to actually back up what we're trying to do. Because every single person on the planet wants to know the why. And without a why, we can't really persuade them to join our side. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote a really good book called The Tipping Point. And some of you may have read it. It's been around for quite a while. But 
he focused on things that became viral. So like trends and things like that he saw and tried to investigate why they went so trendy or so viral. And what he found is that at some point, we reach what he calls the tipping point, where we have to do all the upfront work to get a certain number of people to adopt or to jump on board with the trend. And then all of a sudden, the, the scales totally shift and we go from, we're trying to push it out to people are actively just coming and taking it from you and saying, I want it, I want it. And um, in that situation, we have to also think about uh, that in terms of transformation. There is a tipping point. There are a number of people who will adopt and we've found that it's between 30 and 40%, depending on your organization. And once that happens, you have enough of a mass of people who have adopted that the scales tip in your favor and people will start to come to you. Um, getting to that tipping point is very important, but the only way to do it is by telling people why so that they can share it with other people and convince other people that this is the right step to make. And the only way to get there is data, in my personal opinion. Excellent. I love that. You mentioned the tipping points. Great book recommendation. I always try to ask for book recommendations. So I'm glad you put that one out there. I mentioned brain rules earlier as a book recommendation. Again, some ideas on neuroscience and how the brain operates. Uh, but one of the other ones I was going to actually throw out there, because of the sleep thing, again, I'm hung up on that, it seems like, but, but the sleep piece to this and partly part of the data part of this, there's a book that I read a few years ago called Two Awesome Hours. I read so many books for work and for pleasure, and it's one of the few books that actually changed my behaviors around how I work because the book looks at the science of how we operate physically, the physiology behind how we make decisions, the, the decision-making power of your brain, the productivity, all those kinds of things. And the book gives you some ideas on how to hit your, be right on point where you need to be from a focus level, from a productivity level, things like that. So it's not about just squeeze more productivity out of your day because we know there's a, there's a limit to how much you can focus. There's a limit to how much you can do decisions you can make that are of any quality before your brain is just needs to recovery again so and so two awesome hours this was a great book that helped encourage me to think differently and more strategically about the work day when i make my creative decisions how i structure my time things like that so again i'll give you that gift i guess in addition to uh getting another one on the tipping point mountain gladwell i'm a big reader i love to, to pick up ones pick up new books and learn new, new concepts. And that's one that I actually have not read yet. I've heard good things. So I need to dig, dig into it now. Ben, have you, have you read the, the Dare to Lead book by Brene Brown? That's another one I'll add to your list. And the reason I okay. add that, and, and if you haven't read it in the audience, anything by Brene Brown is phenomenal. But when we talk about storytelling, Brene Brown is an incredible storyteller who uses data and her PhD and her background in vulnerability and, and uses that to her advantage to tell stories. So I try to emulate her way of talking, way of speaking, way of writing as much as I can, but she's a phenomenal author who backs everything up in data and uses that to help drive changes within ourselves. So Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I have not actually. I've seen Brene Brown speak two or three times and she's amazing. Every time you're like, okay, I've seen her speak, I'm done. And like, oh, no way, there's another piece of gold right there. She lays out there for you. So it's an incredible experience to see her on the stage. As we're wrapping up here, again, if someone wants to reach out to you, wants to connect, obviously in alt space, you can point your trigger at them and you can connect them here. But in the real world, what's the best way for someone to follow you or learn more about your work, Travis? Yeah, probably the easiest way is through LinkedIn. And it's just Travis D. Haler. 
is my username at LinkedIn. So if you go linkedin.com slash Travis D. Haler. I, I don't share a lot on there, but I speak quite a bit throughout the year. I try to share when I'm speaking. So if people are interested in coming and, and talking, also just connecting with me in general, I will say I do respond to every single message that I get on LinkedIn. I get a lot of them, so it might take me a little while. So please give me a little grace there, but I'm happy to connect with every, everyone and anyone and to talk about experiences and, and how we can share what we do and how we do it to create a better experience for us all. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you, Travis. This has been so much fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope everyone else has enjoyed this discussion as well. I've learned some good things. I've my own regret being in the VR world here. I couldn't take notes. I'll have to go back and watch the recording and and make some notes on everything you, you shared because I've got some good some good tidbits and ideas. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ben. And thank you everyone for, for joining us. This has been phenomenal. I, I love having talks like this. Please reach out if there's anything that we can do to, to connect further and continue that discussion. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Travis Haler from Google today on We Are Only Human. This was a tremendous experience for me to be able to share, learn from him, taking my own notes. And uh, again, the event, Global HR Summit, was was just tremendous. So thankful for the opportunity to participate in that and can't wait for the next one. To all of you out there listening in, please share this episode with someone. If you run across them, they're a human and they have to deal with change management, which is hey, all of us, frankly. I really appreciate you for listening in. I am Ben Eubanks, and I will catch you next time. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm honored to have you as a listener. If you enjoyed this episode, please take 10 seconds to rate it at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you know a friend that could benefit from today's conversation, please pass it their way. After all, a rising tide lifts all ships. To see show notes, sponsor information, and our full show archives, visit OnlyHumanShow.com.